Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's nearly 10 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. And a disclaimer up front that I've got a very professional lady in studio today who's going to be doing most of the speaking. She's busy shaking her head because I gave her the heads up um, as she walked into the studio. This young lady's name is Motsabi Nomvete, and she is the technical marketing specialist at PPS. And Motsabi, the reason you're going to be speaking is because I'm recovering from a cold, and therefore we don't want to irritate the listeners. And I think maybe in this area, for certain, you have more to say and you are more proficient than I am. But just to, as a way of introduction, it is Ladies' Month, yep. it is Women's Month, mm-hmm. and um, a, a cliched thing is that if we have to wait for Women's Month to recognize women, then we've got a problem as society. You've done something wrong already. Correct. But yep. sometimes that's nice to highlight the issue yes. and sort of s- focus the spotlight. But one thing that we know as South Africans and one thing that we know um, as the Jewish community is that the lady is the cornerstone of the house. And we don't have to go far in this country just to see the the fact that if not for that cornerstone, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in the business world, whether it's in the wider community, we really wouldn't have much. Mm. Um, as the, the expression goes, and I don't know the origin of the expression, if you strike a, a woman, woman, you yep. strike a rock. A rock. Yes. And, um, you know, in, in, in the Jewish vernacular, the rock is, is often referred to as the corner rock, that which everything is built on. Yes. And, and, you know, without getting too emotional about it, but that, that's really what it's about. Mm. However, on the negative side in South Africa, women have often been brought to the fore in that position, not by choice, mm. by the fact that husbands, sons, Traveled in order mm-hmm. to earn the income. Migrant labor. Migrant labor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have a choice. And they weren't going for six weeks. They were going for 11 months yeah. at a time, maybe even longer. Yeah. And they were coming home in the gap between traveling to and from mm. a year contract. Yep. And how do you keep a family together? Mm. And what happened is all of a sudden you have a lady without any financial background, any financial savviness in the modern context. Yep. Is thrown into the fore and she's asked to run this and the money is coming in mm. but now all of a sudden there's a whole new world that unfolds and mm. it's not much different 80 years ago to what it is today except for that obviously education you know, has, has hopefully progressed mm. people are more aware people are more savvy but it's just popped into my mind and I, and I just want to maybe tell the story briefly sure. and if you can maybe if you know the story I think it's got to do with not the Chief Justice or the Deputy Chief Chief Justice. I think it's a deputy. Deputy. Who's what's his name? Do you know offhand? Oh gosh. Okay, it'll pop into our minds just now. <laughs> but just to repeat the story briefly and then and I'm going to be um liberal with the facts because I don't remember it all that clearly. But he tells the story and he was asked by the Chief Justice to repeat it. Mm. That he comes from a, a rural part of the country and yet again I, I don't remember the details. And his mother was very anxious because he got into university mm. and he was going for a while and he obviously helped to supplement the family income. Yes. He went into town, he said he called a taxi into town and he went to a shop owner mm. whose name I do remember is a Mr. Musa. Uh-huh. Yes. And he said to him, I need your help, please. Mm. He says, I need credit. Mm. I'm going to university. I'm studying law. 
my mother needs to eat. Um, could you extend credit to me? And when I qualify, mm. I'll repay it. Mm. Now, off the top of your head, that's a very cheeky thing to ask for. It is very to, brave. Brave to ask Probably for a month, quite for a year, but to ask for any of a degree. <laughs> yeah, that's and pushing I, it. And Mr. Musa turned around and said, I won't give your mother money, but your mother can have X amount of credit for food in my store mm. every month mm. to, to come and look for me. And as we say in Hebrew, Kachaya, that's what happened. Yep. And he said he qualified and he went back to Mr. Musa and he introduced himself and reminded him and he said, how much do I owe you? Mm. And the answer of Mr. Musa was, you don't owe me anything. All I ask of you is if when you have an opportunity to help mm. somebody, mm. make sure that you don't let that pass you. Mm. And that just shows the magnanimity of the individual. It shows what society is all about. Mm. And, you know, Motsabi, another thing I was thinking about, this Mr. Musa might have been a comfortable chap in his little town, mm. but it obviously wasn't a wealthy area. No. So I it wasn't it. like he was writing off, a, a, I don't know, shrinkage or, or something silly. Mm. He was obviously feeling that even it was 20 or 30 rand as But the, he the, made the decision. He something made a decision. resonated with him. And, and he, he kept it for decision. four years. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's an absolutely amazing story. I mean, those are the kind of stories, one, we need to hear more of. I think we there's so much negative news out there that we just need a break and hear the positive stories. Back to the good um, Deputy Chief Justice. I think for me the story that is there is how many of our children are actually raised under those circumstances. How many of our children are raised by single moms, probably getting little or nothing, and they just somehow have to go with it. That's what resonated with me with that story. And what type of individual must you be? Because that must take the will out of you for you to say, you know what, I don't, I cannot think of any other plan. Firstly, that takes a whole lot of humility for you to be able to approach a stranger and ask him for something that huge takes an awful lot of guts. But I think he had foresight. He had vision and he probably, he obviously had a whole lot of hope, which is probably what made him go there because the rest of us would be like, nah, he won't take me seriously. I'm not even going to bother. So, I mean, that is guts beyond guts. But I think obviously then Mr. Musa, on the other hand, for him to have listened to this and said, you know what? I can actually give back whatever little bit. I mean, that's just, it's a beautiful, amazing story. And it is actually encouraging, especially now at the time when we need to hear good stories. Just before we give up on ourselves, we actually, there's so much more we can offer. We're never going to give up on ourselves. We shouldn't. Well, we're not. Because if we were going to give up of, of ourselves, we'd still be in an apartheid era. That's true. If we were going to give up on ourselves, we wouldn't have a lady that is vying for a position of president of the, of, of the ANC. A few ladies. Country. A few ladies. Yep. Especially when it's your, when it's the president's ex-wife. It shows guts, shows tenacity, shows those of chutzpah also. Oh yes. But that's where, but before we go to the break, let me turn the question back on you. Sure. And I think this is a beauty about South Africa. Mm. We're sitting here as professionals in the same industry. Mm. I'm a white male, you're a black female. Mm. I can almost assume and take it for granted you have a different life experience to me getting to this point. You said as a rhetorical question earlier, how many people or how does it work? Mm. So let me ask you the question, and let's put it in context now. 2017, mm. I've got a third child finishing matric this year. 
went to private Jewish schools, the most phenomenal education that you can have. Even if the child didn't apply themselves, the education that they got via osmosis, just being Molded in the environment, yep. it is just unbelievable. Mm. Um, and maybe I'll take a, just a quick uh, uh, um, opportunity to say thank you to Yeshiva College for my son finishing Yeshiva College. Oh, wow. um, I trick, he's been there since grade two, and it's been the most phenomenal home to him. And to us, we are not part of that community. We're enjoying in grade two. And from day one, they have gone out of their way to make us feel welcome and provide my son with the most holistic environment in which he, he can grow. Wow. He, I don't think, has applied himself as well as he could have, but he has gained from being in that environment unbelievably. Mm. Having said that, how many black parents whose children are not in urban schools, mm. but in rural schools, mm-hmm. can say what I've just said with such confidence and maybe lightheartedness. Mm. Does that I exist? Think the sad thing is not a lot. I mean, you do get pockets of excellence. You do get pockets of excellence in students. You get pockets of excellence in teachers and in principals and in management of the school. We do hear of a few of those. I mean, even Asad Nan, I think, what would, um, I think his name is Zondi, the deputy chief. Where, where is his mom and what is she thinking right now when she looks at him and now he's been promoted to one of the prestigious officers in the land? And, you know, so there is those pockets. What we need to find, obviously, is to spread that so that a whole lot more kids who might come from very disadvantaged backgrounds are still given opportunities. Because if you think how many of our chief executives, financial officers, good leaders, managers, whatever people, good people with good standing in the community actually come from very poor, very disadvantaged backgrounds. And somewhere in there, I'm inclined to believe it took a very strong woman to raise a child in the form of a grandmother, a sister, an aunt, a neighbor. I mean, we had a lady visit our offices last week on Friday. We were celebrating Women's Day at, at, at PPAs. And this lady, because her parents couldn't afford to keep but she's now a doctor, a PhD doctor, but they had to send her off to Cape Town all the way from the Eastern Cape, where then her aunt's friend looked after her. I mean, how distant is that relationship? You're in the Eastern Cape, you move to Cape Town, not to be looked after by family, by an aunt's friend. But that person took her right through school, made her see the vision, made her say, I will get myself out of this. And today she is 35. She is a PhD doctor in nanotechnology. Who thinks of stuff like that? Besides the fact that she had very strong people and most importantly, very strong women, including her teachers. She did pay homage to her teachers who were always fighting for her. They were always on her side. They were always pushing her. They were always channeling her energies in the right direction. And those are the stories that we want to hear more of. That as much as we might not have, might not have the benefits, for example, of going to a good private school because there is no resources. What other things can people in the community do? To help and support our children I always say that financial planning From a professional's point of view Is really 15% of the financial planning process Mm. The rest It's not even a process It's a guide We guide clients Mm -hmm. with our experience and academic Mm -hmm. knowledge Mm. The rest is really what the client brings to the table And we need to work with that material In order together to come to an outcome And that comes honestly from a place of what are your values? What do you hold true? I always laugh when I meet young people and they say to me, oh, I'm waiting to earn X. Then I will start saving. 
I'm waiting to first do this. Then maybe I'll see a financial planner. We have reasons and excuses why we're not doing something because we're waiting for the next big thing. But the point is, if you don't have those, if you don't have that fundamental value of from rand one, day one, I need to incorporate a financial plan in my one rand. It's going to become increasingly difficult, not impossible, but hell of a difficult for you to be able to do it when you have your 10,000, your 20,000, your 100,000. So you need to start early. And when I think back, like, for example, with us, back in the days before financial planning became sophisticated, before we had access to banks and cards and credit and all these wonderful things, what did our grandparents do? What did my parents do? They had a stock file. What is now traditionally known as a stock files in locations we call it society because it's a society of people who pool their resources together. And they did it with no advisor, with no, with nothing else. But you know what? I need to pool my resources and I need to save for a rainy day. That rainy day, it started off mostly with funerals <coughs> where they knew that, well, we're going to need to somehow bury this person. So everybody would chip in. And I mean, I remember my, my mom always told me the story when she grew up in Mayerton way back when. He said they would always know that there's a funeral because they would see the ladies of the street walking with either a bag of maize meal on their head or some flour or some oil or margarine, but anything that was going to help the family, the bereaved family, to put together food and anything else that they need to then be able to bury that person. That's, that is actually the simplicity of financial planning. The risk, the sophistication, the complication, the diversity of diversify your portfolio and do it, all of that will come. Provided you understand the basics, I need to save for, for a rainy day, I need to be regular, I need to be consistent, and I never touch that. It is for a rainy day, not for shopping, not for nothing else, but I don't touch it if this money is for a funeral or it's only for that. And as I said, I think with us now, we have become a bit spoiled. We have so much choice available to us that we forget the basics. And the basics of financial planning don't change, not for anybody. I could keep quiet and let you go, but I need, I know we need to go to the shops. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with you in a moment. Arby on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9. Welcome back to 101.9. Chai FM. It's 24 minutes past the hour and Motsabi, unfortunately, half the show's already gone. Wow. And we really haven't got onto the topic, but just listening to you speak, what I'm, what I'm intrigued by is that the truths Sound or the, the 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 truth ring true across different communities because ultimately there are fundamental truths. Yep. And regardless of where you come from, you know one thing about let's say the Jewish community in which I grew up and which I'm part of is that financial astuteness mm. has always been part of the makeup of the person. Mm. And, mm. and there's maybe different reasons that, that you know Jews were never settled anywhere in the world wherever they were. They were always yep. waiting to be expelled from place A to mm. place B. Mm. Um often that was the only sort of businesses that they could go into because they couldn't own land or mm. they etc etc. But family and business went hand in hand and we had the privilege of sitting and listening and being part and hearing and just being in the milieu. Yet yet in South Africa, the family in the black communities across the board, on the whole, were fragmented. Mm. And you didn't have this idea of a child sitting at their parents' supper table, listening to what happened and... You know, without being maybe insensitive, it's a Shabin shop or it's a Spaza shop or, 
just the guys working in a factory. But by the time dad came home. It's too late. Exactly. Yeah. And yet, look what is happening. Mm. I went to Eastgate the other day. I grew up in an observatory on top of the ridge there mm. that we can see from this window. Eastgate was my haunt. I mean, I knew the place inside out. Mm. I went back there. It was like, I felt like a stranger. Unrec- First of all, the, it's changed physically, mm. which is good, which means that Liberty's spending some money on it. <laughs> um, but also, the demographics has changed. Mm. It was very continental. And mm. very Jewish. Mm. I think there's still some continental people around, but this, uh, the demographics have changed. Mm. Mm. And the place was teeming with people. Mm. Whether they were spending money or not, I don't think is the issue for me. They were the, there. They were there. Mm. And it's undeniable that we have just moved, as we said off air, or I said off air very quickly, um, very briefly. We have moved in the last short time of our new democracy so quick that we've often tripped over ourselves. Yes. Oh yes, we've often often had to like sort of just stop and take a quick break and and, and catch ourselves. Mm. But the miracle of the country sometimes, when I listen to a person like you talk, it always slaps you on the side of the face. Like, do you realize what we actually have? Is that we're going to drive back to our offices just now on beautifully paved roads mm. and tarred roads, which you take so for granted. Absolutely, our, our, our phones work, and if our phone, the cell phone goes down for ten minutes, there's almost a riot. Um, oh, yes. I'll get back in, and maybe someone will look at me and say the system has been very slow today. Mm. Mm. Well, that's the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, yeah, and woeful. All we need to do is just go across the border, mm. and all of a sudden we've got a totally different story unfolding. Mm. And yet we've got so much positive happening. I heard a thing last night on another radio station, and something that I've been saying for a long, long time: we need to shut off and and ignore the political pollution mm. that's coming into our lives on the on. There's uh, too much noise in the system, and it's getting us nowhere. You and I are carrying on regardless. So what I'd like to spend the next half an hour mm-hmm. chatting about is let's let's understand first of all where women fit in. Yes. Let's understand where women fit in in the South African context, mm-hmm. and let's understand where women who have really got their backs against the wall with no resources, no line no lines of credit, um, you know, earning less than they need. Mm-hmm. And yet they still manage to save. How does that all come into perspective? Because I think once we finish that discussion, all of a sudden the listeners will have and myself will have a new understanding of the people that we interact with, but in a very detached way yeah. mm-hmm. on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's always lessons to be learned from everybody. Mm. So let's start there. But okay. let's maybe start with the one term that, that sort of um, came up and hit me on the side of the face is the black tax. And the pink tax. Yes. The black tax is, I think, not a peculiar phenomenon to black South Africans mm-hmm. because in you'll find in most close-knit communities you're going to have that. Mm. But it's exacerbated in the black community. What is the black tax in a simplistic form? All it is is with especially first-generation working properly working individuals in any family. Remember with the black community mostly, it's a community. It's your aunts, your uncles and everybody else who brings you up. So ours, we don't have that sense of nuclear family. Like for example, the Jewish family, the, the Jewish family. So you have everybody chip in. Whether the person chipped in 20 rand, 10 rand, 1000 rand towards your school fees or to raise you, there is this expectation that when you start working, very, you know, Undertone, not really said in your face. Some people do, but not often said in your face that, uh, well, once you go through university or tertiary and you start working, 
don't forget up where you come from and don't forget about me. So people, a lot of black people find themselves that when they start working, there is this enormous expectations from all ends. Everybody wants a piece of you because they, like I said, it could, they could have given you 50 rand once off to catch a taxi to go to Durban to university. But there is now this unsaid expectation. And that comes then when there's funerals, everybody looks your way. When there's a wedding, everybody looks your way. When there's a kid's birthday party, this and that, everybody looks your way. Like you said, I think this is not necessarily, I don't believe it is necessarily a black problem. I think the problem with the black community is that it is, it tends to be more than just a nuclear family. So it's a, it's a few more people. But what I stand by and what I stand, stand firm on is ultimately you decide the relationship that you have with money. You decide how people are going to treat you and how they're going to treat your money. So it's all fair and well for people to have expectations of you. But I think it's important for you the day you start working to bed those down. And look, I'm not saying don't help. I'm not saying now pretend that those people never existed. I'm not in any way suggesting that. But you need to be honest with yourself. You need to put yourself down and say, what can I, what am I willing and what can I put forward then to look after everybody else? Once you've had that open discussion with yourself, spread the word. Let them know. Thank you. I appreciate it. I can help with X. And that is it. I think if you set your foot down the first time, and that comes from a place of love. It's not because now I think I'm better than you and I'm going to forget all about you. And I'm, it's not about that. The point is you now need to also have a long-term view in terms of what you want with your money. And the truth is, I've seen people who cannot manage with all these expectations. I have seen people either borrowing from Peter to pay Paul to keep up with expectations, becoming alcoholics because every time the phone rings, somebody wants money. Instead of saying, I can't help you, they go borrow money, then they can't pay that person, then they're too scared to now see that person that they've seen. So now they, I've seen it all. I've lived long enough to see it all. And I'm saying, and that's why I say, ultimately it is your money. You decide the kind of relationship you're going to have with it. Help people and help them understand, I'm going to help you, but only so much and so far. And remember also, help is not only financial. For example, if there's a funeral, we have big funerals and whatever else. There's so much work done because with our funerals, you feed people for a week minimum. People coming into the home to come and pay their last respects and condolences and all of that. We feed them for a week. What stops you from going into that home? And washing dishes, because you will wash dishes. <laughs> I mean, people are streaming in from morning till like 9, 10 in the evening. There is dishes to be washed. The house needs to be clean. There's things. To, so I'm saying, look at what are the other ways in which you can help people, because money is not always a solution. But also, the sooner you, treat, you t- teach people that I really can only help you so much, they will also learn not to expect the impossible from you. And like I said, that has got nothing to do with being ungrateful, nothing to do with now you think you're better than them. It's just a question of we need to nip this. We need to somehow say, let us start somewhere with a clean slate. But it goes to the fundamental that the most important part about financial planning is discipline. And discipline comes with boundaries. It comes with boundaries. And and you need to set them yourself. And once you set them, you secure Everybody else is secure because they're knowing what the rules of engagement oh, are. Oh, yes. And then we can move forward. Oh, yes. But if those rules of engagement are constantly moving, we have a scenario like a political scenario. Oh, yes. Where all of a sudden it's false. And it actually is. And this is, I think for me, when I, I'm going to tell you two quick stories about where my financial journeys started. The one was with my own mom. I've told you the story, before, but I, I repeat it because it, it resonates with me. In our household, I was lucky and blessed enough to grow up with both parents, nuclear family, that was it. 
both my parents teachers, so we were one of those too rich to get a bursary, too poor to pay for your own fees. So we did what they now call the middle class. I was slap bam in that in the 1980s already. Where were your parents teachers? They were teachers in back then what used to be called Buputatswana. So okay. a homeland. Um, yeah. And like I said, then they decided, gonna, well, there was no school where we lived. So we were forced to actually go to a white private school, which was not cheap. Um, and that was it. We just had to go with it. And my parents somehow had to figure this one out. But I remember, and I always tell the story, the strength of my mom, and they were not just teachers. At some point, fine, they started off as teachers, but at some point, they both became principals, school principals, which was relatively prestigious, but not paying you the salary. Okay, so in the community, you would have expected us to be the ones with the bigger house, the nicer cars, the this, the this, the this. But my mom was very clear in her vision. She was very clear in her vision that for now, my priorities are two. One, get my kids through school because nobody's going to pay for them. Two, save for my retirement. And absolutely every other decision that she made was based on those two things. So if there's money to be spent, it is after I've paid the school fees and after I've saved for retirement. And she never, ever budged from that. I remember when we moved into our home, what became our home, they built this beautiful house, cash, over many years. I was about six years old. So as soon as we moved into this house, we've got little chairs like you have in here. That's what we were sitting on to watch TV. So we're like, okay, well, when are the couches coming? Like now we can see ourselves lunching. And, and my mom was like, I'll buy them in six years' time. And he's like, well, <laughs> like, how do you figure that? And she says, according to my budget, I can only afford to buy them in six years' time. And she had a plan for absolutely everything. We buy clothes, you buy clothes in March and in September. Not May, not December. No, because her budget said the kids will buy clothes. And so we, that's how we grew up. But today, she is living her best life ever. She can do what she wants, when she wants, how she wants. And that for me resonates because I thought when I was six, I had my first almost cruel financial lesson that, okay, so now you plan for stuff and you don't plan for stuff for tomorrow. You actually have a long term. And I mean, like I said, that's how she finished her whole house this year was this, the next year. And she had the plan. I mean, I remember she, the couch thing, when she said to me in six years time, I thought, You've got to be kidding me. Are we going to be sitting on these uncomfortable straight chairs to watch TV? But that was it. So that was, and like I said, I mean, it would have been very easy for her back then even to say, oh, well, now I'm a school principal. I suppose I need to speed up the acquiring of furniture. But she was never, ever influenced by that because she was clear. I'm sending you to a good school I'm and I'm going to retire. I'm convinced your mother cheated on her plans <laughs> on the retirement side. Not, eh? Did she not augment it more when she could? Uh, look, she's a year from retirement and she stresses that she still doesn't have em- enough. And I'm like, you can retire like yesterday and you're still <laughs> going to have enough. I mean, and I said to her, I don't want your money. None of us want our money because we're all okay. Uh, you've done a good enough job that we're all okay. But I mean, I think just the discipline goes back to that discipline of absolutely everything. And I mean, we were lucky. We would be able to go on holiday every once in a while and she'd buy us treats and this, but there was no whimsical, oh, well, today I'm just going to go wild with my money, wild and crazy. Everything was absolutely planned for. So I'll, and as I would say, I think we don't need to complicate financial planning. It really is simple. Whether you've got dual income, little income, lots of income, wherever you fall in, you need to accept firstly, what is your piece of the pie? That's the first thing. And work with that and only that. Yes, access to credit and everything can help. For example, if you need to get a house and that kind of stuff, there's a time and a place for that. And I'm not saying don't, 
But even that you need to have done your homework properly, you need to know, don't then overextend yourself as well. Because the problem now, like what you're trying to, what you were saying earlier about how we've gone from having nothing to having it all, probably messing it up. And then that's the end of that story. Yes, I can understand that obviously as black people, we were denied before. So all the luxuries and stuff that we have now, we didn't have, or our parents didn't have that a few years ago. I fully get that. But now that we have it, that is not a key for us to be irresponsible with it. One, we need to be grateful that, okay, we are now in a better place a whole lot more than we thought we could be. Now what do I do with it? And in the years, then you can look after your parents. You can look after the other family members. But you can't now just spend this money, blow this money, and then think, and then what are you going to blame it on? Because we're quickly running out of excuses as well. You know, before it was 20, however many years ago, it was apartheid. Now what's our excuse? And what's going to be the next excuse? And I think that's a conversation we need to be having with ourselves to say, okay, I've had my chance. I'm in a much better place. How do I make then the right decisions, the wise decisions? And more importantly, which is what I think Jewish people are very good at, is building that legacy. I mean, just the Sunday I read in the paper, some guy who was living the life, he had it all. He had it all. And now I actually think he was helping some Jewish community with some project on the sidelines. And now they're going to take his house away, about 14 million or 15 million in Cape Town. I'm thinking, how did you get to that? <laughs> like, how did you get to that? Having said that, obviously we must not forget then our other um, compatriots where are probably in rural areas that have even less money to work with. But the principle stays the same. Whatever pot of money you have, you need to work within it. And like I said, it is not impossible. There's Sometimes I actually think, I always tell this other story as well, that one of my... Before we start the story, we've got sure. exactly 20 seconds to the break. So I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break. Okay. I think you've been speaking for quite a while. Get, <laughs> catch your breath. Sure. And we'll be back with you in a moment. Avi on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9. Welcome back to 101.9. Hi, famous 19 minutes to the hour. And, uh, but so I'll be the reason we say the hour is because people say to me, Oh, I just heard you on the way into the office. I said, but I haven't been on the radio for three days because it does get replayed. And, uh, thank you to everybody who often comes up and tells me a colleague this yesterday told me they listened to me on the way into work, oh, wow. which was quite nice to hear. Um, Matwabin Namveti, you are the technical marketing specialist at PPS, mm -hmm. and we're discussing, for those of us who just joined, and maybe just to recap, it is Women's Month, and we made it very clear that's not the only time that no. we pay homage, and we are, acknowledge the role that women pay, but we've already spoken, you know, really spent a majority of the show talking about the role of women in the financial planning context, mm. and what we've really done is demystify this whole story. We've taken this label and put it aside mm. and ultimately said in two different ways, my way of, and your way of, of expressing it, that financial planning is basically common sense and application and discipline. discipline. And you gave the example of your mother, which I am sure that people will repeat over and over and over, and your mother should only you know, be blessed for people speaking about her in such a positive way. Um where here is somebody who was, I don't like to use the word educated, but somebody who had some exposure to, to, to modern financial planning tools, mm. but yet went back to the primeval basics of financial planning. Yep. I earn X, I spend Y, I put away, I don't deviate, and I make sure that my children understand mm. that by not having material um, goods doesn't make them poor. Yes. 
by knowing that six years for a six-year-old is a lifetime. <laughs> but inculcating in you the idea oh, yes. that one needs to plan. I'm sure you did all the calculations. I'm six now. I'll be 12. Who's 12? What do they look like? What way are we going to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, how sore is my backside going to be of sitting on this chair for the next <laughs> six years? You did all that. Yep. But I look at you today. I walk past you, I think, when I walked in. I, 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 I know where you work. <laughs> and I'm hearing the way you speak. You are the picture of success, not in a material way only, but someone who's confident, someone who is calm and someone who's able to have a conversation without getting edgy when people aren't exactly PC, hmm. which means that you're coming from a point of view where your mother inculcated in you, there's absolute strength and confidence within yourselves. Mm. And I know there's another story that you want to speak. Maybe we'll close with that, but just to okay. go there. That's something that I, I'd like to hear from you. You know, again, being Jewish, I grew up in a past, post Holocaust mm. um, environment. The Holocaust was something that I heard about all the time. Mm. It was just, it was prevalent. Mm. I had a very, very good friend in school who I can still Picture his mother standing in the flat in Yeovil, washing dishes, and on her arm was a number sure. that she had got when she was a child. Um, wow. it, which was part of what we did. Mm. Holocaust mm. survivors. I remember one guy in, in, in Shula, in our synagogue, mm. said to a guy whose name was Kapaluchnik, he said to him in Yiddish, which is like the Jewish mm. vernacular, mm. he said, come sit. And he said, I've already sat for 30 years. And I said to my father, because I understood the con- I said, what does it mean he sat for 30 years? He said, I explained to you on the way home. And he said to me that he sat in a Siberian prison sure. for 30 years hard labor. Wow. So, he's you done. know, the other words, he's it was, his dues. Sure. Was thought, but how do you be so flippant about it? Mm. Where I'm going with all this is that we grew up with this and therefore it was maybe something to prove or rebuild and, you know, from the ashes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Mm. Apartheid, was only a short period of time. But there was a whole mindset way before mm. that. Oh, Trevor yes. Noah puts it, I don't know if you ever watched the one about the British arriving on the coast and, and telling to people to say ABC uh-huh. and they won't listen and then they shoot them and all of a sudden they're saying ABC. Oh. And, and he was very funny with the way. <laughs> but the Bonabam, it was just a dominance from the moment they arrived. And that's something that just in, gets inculcated in mm. a culture. It does. Today, we're in a diff- totally different. You and I are sitting across this table. Uh, me in the, I want to say, but uh, listening to every word that comes out of your mouth with reverence. What would your message, and what is your message, not only verbal, but the way you conduct your life to women, be them young girls going through school, high school, varsity, starting their life, older ladies who've lived their whole life invisible. Mm. To those of us who swoop past in our fancy cars and just see them standing on the side, mm. what, what's your message to them? I think, like my article is titled, Financial Planning Doesn't Happen by Chance. Females, we are good at looking after the whole world. And like you said, we, they, we have tended to look after the family finances because dad is away, if he exists, he's a, away at the mines, far away, sends money home, and somehow you need to make do with whatever is given to you. But all his priority was on everybody else. We've never sat down to say, what do I want? What do I need? And then go out and actively pursue it. 
urban women, some women are now in a better position in that now they're getting better jobs, they are getting more educated. We have everything for us. So for this lot of women, I'm saying the chances now, I'm a one, I'm a firm believer in money gone, just like time is gone. It doesn't come back. So think and think very carefully of how you spend your money. Establish, I mean, I thought this morning, part of Women's Month, there's obviously the highlight on violence against women and all of that. We are quick to spot a bad relationship. If you are in one, you can tell, you might ignore the signs, but you can say, mm, this guy's making me feel uncomfortable or he makes me not like myself so much. Then you choose to stay or not to stay. Why are we not as disciplined? Because we have the same, I, I believe we have the same level of instinct when we have a bad and poor relationship with money. But then we choose to ignore it. Oh, I'll just keep buying the shoes anyway. I'll just be, keep being extravagant. I'll just keep, but there's a little voice in you that keeps saying, you shouldn't be buying that shoe. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing it. Why are we ignoring it? And then who are we then? Because I thought to myself, we're almost being, um, miss, what's the word? Miss, uh, it's now slipped my mind, but we're not being true to ourselves because on the one hand, we're disingenuous. saying, disingenuous, that's the word, disingenuous, yes. On the one hand, we're saying, know your worth. You know, for example, don't let a man slap you, don't let him abuse you, etc. But on the other hand, we know our financial worth, but we're choosing to ignore it. And also, I think obviously because I am in insurance, I come, my whole life has been in an insurance environment. I now honestly believe that one, if you have assets, you need to protect them. If you have children, you need to protect them. If you have an income, you need to protect that. So in every other financial decision that you make, you need to say, if I'm not here tomorrow, if my income is not here tomorrow, whether you're married rich, you're married for love, or you're not even married, the point is, how are you going to protect your income so that you can then still do the things that you would have done yourself if you're around? And remember, insurance, I always say there's two types of insurance. There's insurance should you die quickly. I and mean, people hate it when you say should you die, but we all probably will. And we don't know when that will be. Exactly. And I... I often say to people, you've got to have the discussion once. Don't have to repeat it no, over. No, but, but have it. Face it once, deal with it, put the plan in place and move it's on. It's done. And then you get on with it. Okay? So you need to have insurance for life's eventualities. The PC word of saying it now is life eventualities. But I mean, you could become disabled. You could have a chronic illness. I mean, I heard this one over 27 year old has got cancer, stage four cancer. Who would have ever guessed that? So now the question is, she's got a young kid. Has she made provision? To support herself and to support the child. She might survive the cancer. Maybe, maybe not. It's going to come at a cost either way. Has she provided for that? And then obviously thinking more long term and the other type of insurance is what happens if I outlive my salary? Because one of two things, you're either going to die very quickly or you're going to live very, really very long. What happens then if you outlive your, people are now living, what, to their eighties, nineties, probably even longer? You know, when I, when I was a kid, if you were seventy, you were old. It was a bonus. Today, people of seventy-five, eighty are working full Easily. days, healthy. Adrian Gore always says that the, the challenge we have today is that people are living longer, less healthily, oh yes, and more expensively. So that because that comes at a cost. The point is now you're alive. The c- medical costs are going up, and you've done very little. To secure that, or at least to somewhat. So every decision that you make needs to say, well, look at both eventualities and have some form of protection against both because we don't know on which side of the coin we're going to be. So protect yourself, protect what you have. Um, nothing is stopping us. If you look at everything else that we have done, what is stopping us? Besides probably fear or even laziness, if I dare say that, 
what is actually stopping us? There is so much information available to us now that we really should not be fearful of this thing. If we can tackle, if women in 1956 can march to the union buildings until somebody hears them, and if we can break the glass ceilings in a corporate world, and we can go through schooling, be more educated, what is stopping us from doing that one single thing, which will not only look after us, because it's almost funny again, it's one of those dichotomies again, we say we want to look after our kids, but we're not looking after ourselves. How does that work? How do you look after your kids if you are just drained and you're not there and there is no money to look after them? So little, little things that you do, every decision that you make must just be geared to what ultimately what do I want and then everything must be driven around that. Well, sorry, I've just got a whole lot of things in my mind. I've got nine minutes, but technically about six and a half minutes before the show ends. I want to throw a spanner in the works quickly. Sure. I I was chatting to somebody a while ago, a very successful business person over here. His wife is a lawyer, but she's never practiced. They have a large family, many children. He's a very successful guy. Mm. But political correctness has never been part of his lexicon. And he's sort of, not that he has no filter, but he speaks his heart. And he turned around to me, um, and the long and the short of it is he said, a woman who is married with children should not be working. Their function in the family unit mm-hmm. is to bring up the children. How do you expect to have a stable unit when both parents are out chasing up the buck and the children are left to their own devices? Mm-hmm. It's a very broad topic. It's a topic for a panel. It's a whole oh, discussion. Yes. In your experience, um, not the merits whether that's correct or that's not mm-hmm. correct because the reality today it's is that we different. need dual income. Mm-hmm. What is the role of this unique creature called a lady, called a mother, called a wife? How does this person split themselves into different Mm. personas, personalities, jobs, roles, counselors, wives? How how does it work? I think the first thing is obviously for me, fundamentally, children need love. First and foremost, and they need that from both parents. It's not just mom's responsibility. They need that from both parents. Children, they need boundaries. Children need guidance. I don't need to be there 24 hours a day to give them the guidance. Like I said, my parents both worked, but I knew when my mom spoke, I stopped and I listened. (laughs) And she was studying as well. So sometimes she would come home at 7 o'clock in the evening, say two or three things, but you know. Okay, so that's the first, and then, and like I said, the environment currently, we, in most instances, we do need dual income. So, and it, most people can't get away with it, so let's make peace with that. But kids need guidance, and remember, kids live by what you do more than what, what you say. You can say anything and everything. Ultimately, they're going to pick up on the things that you do. And that's why I think a huge responsibility is, especially for women. Like I said, I think, I'm, I'm a firm believer, having grown up with both parents in, both parents being around and because we have such different influences on children that I, and I think kids can only be stronger by having both influences. In the case, for example, of an absent father, we can't pretend it doesn't happen. Get them role models. But I think the first thing that as a woman you should not do in that event where you are now the sole provider, the only breadwinner or the only parent is overcompensate. Dad's not here. Oh, I'm going to buy you a toy. Then dad's not here. I'm going to give you a big fat party. Then dad's, no, because that teaches the kids absolutely nothing. Your love for that child cannot or should not change because dad is there or dad is not there. If he's there, good for him, great for the kids. But that should not honestly, and I think that's where we, we miss it a lot. Some of us are cringe when I see some of the things. And they actually even say it with pride that I'm doing this because, and I'm like, 
There should not be a because. If you love your child, they will feel that. And if dad said to do it as well, hey ho, happiness all around. So that's the first thing. Do not overcompensate. And again, think long term. I've said this a hundred times today, but I'll keep saying it. Think long term. What are the values that you want to instill in your child? You can get away with anything because I'm so sad life didn't quite work with me and dad. Or you know what? You can still be strong. You can still be successful. You can still be independent. You can still be whatever it is that you want to do because of the guidance and the love that I'm going to give you and the support and the system that I'm going to give you for you to be your best self. It really is that simple. We tend to overcomplicate these things. I'm I'm not usually flawed, and I'm not usually stutter and not quite sure what to say. But I'm very glad in at this moment that we're out of time, because I'm going to leave it just there. And besides thanking you for coming in and sharing your experience, your actions, just as you have said, speak louder than words. Um, and you know, just all the best to you, and you. please continue to be in the public space. So that people can look up to you and people can see what can be achieved. It creates a bit of a responsibility for you, but I think you've had that since you were a little girl and there's only one strong lady to thank for that. Please. Your mother should just be healthy and well. She is. And, thank you. um, you know, just thank you for coming in and thank you for sharing this experience with us. And if I can distill one thing that you've said is don't lie to yourself. Oh yes. It be starts o- with you. Be honest. Man up or lady up. It's your life. Make it happen. So I'll be thank you for coming in and thank you, thank you everybody for listening. This has been one of the quickest hours in my life <laughs> and we will speak to you next week. Goodbye. Thanks, Avi.